You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Your understanding of the kingdom of God and future events shapes your worldview. It can lead to pessimism or optimism. We have reason to be optimistic because Jesus Christ is king now. Turn with us to Mark chapter 9 verses 1 as the pastor delivers the sermon, Kingdom Come. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to begin our reading in verse number 1, and just one verse for our text today. So, some of you got a little bit excited. You might think it's going to be real short. Well, don't get too excited yet, but uh, hopefully we won't disappoint you too much. But Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1, and we did read uh, this verse last week, and we'll talk about why we're coming back over that again. So today... Um, we're talking about an idea that in the theological world we call eschatology. Well, that's just, uh, ology is the doctrine or teaching, and eschatology means it's the doctrine or teaching of the last things or the last days. That's really all we're talking about. And so some people immediately go to thinking about prophecy and thinking about end times and thinking about perhaps cataclysmic events and all these things that are expected to take place. But your view of things like eschatology or the doctrine of the last thing or days, that shapes your worldview. It it shapes your outlook on life. What you think is going to transpire in the future makes a difference with how you live today. It can cause you to be more pessimistic about life and the future can cause you to be more optimistic about life in the future, depending on what view you might hold. And so we might argue, though, that one's view of things like eschatology or the doctrine of the last days or last things is not necessary for a person to be saved. And that's true. It's not. We may disagree about what's going to happen in future events, and we don't have to agree in order to be saved But it's also not an issue that we should scream heresy about. You know, just because someone has a different view of the end times doesn't immediately mean that they're a heretic and that they're not a Christian, they're not a brother, they're not to be trusted in any other thing. Because certainly there um, are strengths and weaknesses for all these different views about the doctrine of the last days. Now, though there's strength and weaknesses, there are some views that are better than others, I would say. I don't know if any of us get it right completely. We're probably going to find out one day that none of us had it pegged exactly right. Some of us may find out we missed it really bad. But there has been a result of these views, both positive and negative, So while some good has resulted from those who take a pessimistic view about the end times, for example, 
those with a pessimistic view of the end times oftentimes are very strong in preaching the gospel because they think everything is going to hell in a handbasket and everything's getting worse and worse and worse and we don't have much time and immediately we're going to be out of here. Time is short. Then those people oftentimes have been very busy about sharing the gospel, telling others about Christ. And so there has been good that has resulted from that. But there's also been harm from that same view. Because in the midst of this gospel push, they've also ceased to build anything that's lasting or think about future generations or build for the glory of God because everything seems so short and imminent and it's going to be over with. In fact, I've even heard some of this view say we shouldn't even have children anymore because things are getting so bad. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. Some have given up all hope except for some future possible kingdom out there somewhere. While others, if they take a different view of the end times, are busy building for the generations to come, building for the glory of God. And they recognize the kingdom as being present now. So I want to pose a question to you before we read this text and think about this for just a moment. Is Jesus king today? Or are we waiting for Jesus to be king in the future? Is Jesus king now, or is he going to be king one day? Look at the book of Mark, chapter number 9, verse number 1. Jesus said this, and he said to them, Verily I say unto you, there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, last week we explored this call to discipleship that Jesus had given. And in this call to discipleship, we saw a contrast in being a disciple of Christ and in how the world lives. And we saw that distinction between the two. And Jesus called those who wanted to be his disciples to follow after him, to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him daily. And that was the call that Jesus issued in regards to discipleship. Now, it's in light of that that we come to verse number 1 of Mark chapter 9. Remember, we left off, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so... You'll find over in the book of Matthew and then also in Luke, this passage tends, in in Mark chapter 9 verse 1, this particular portion of what Jesus said about the kingdom of God coming with power is attached to the previous statement, the, the previous discourse, not what's to follow. So remember, human writers came along uh, later and inserted or human instruments inserted our chapters, our verses, little headings that you might have in your study Bibles. None of this has anything to do with the inerrancy of scripture. It's still God's word. It's still true. But man came along and said, well, we're going to make it easy for times like this for me to say, hey, turn in your Bibles to this passage. And so now there's a, a chapter and a verse so that you can reference it along with me. We can all be at the same place as we read. So putting this chapter division between chapter 8, verse 38, and chapter 9 and verse 1 was kind of not a good thing here. 
Because verse 1 is not connected to what's following in chapter 9. It's actually connected to what we just read last week in chapter number 8. And again, if you look at it in the book of Matthew chapter 16, you'll find that it is linked that way together. And we'll talk about why it doesn't belong with what follows in just a moment. Now, this word that Jesus gave to his disciples about living for him, about following him, about discipleship and taking up that cross to follow him, it had a near-term fulfillment, if you will. This was an important thing that Jesus was saying. Now, we learn from this even today, and still today, we know we should take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him daily. We talked about that last week. But this was especially important to his listeners during that time because they were about to experience some times that were unprecedented. They were about to go through things that no one had ever seen, no one had ever experienced. And these words would become very relevant for them in the events that were about to take place. The disciples were about to experience days unlike any other in history. I mean, they were going to go through things like Jesus' death. Upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, the emergence of the church, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, and the move away from temple worship into what we know as the church. They were about to experience war, famine, upheaval, unrest, crazy times, famine. So as we said, our text today kind of belongs with this previous passage. And in our text, Jesus makes an announcement about an event, an event that's not thousands of years away. Actually, he's talking about an event that is about to happen within a generation. It was a message about King Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. You remember we've seen already through the book of Mark that Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's close. And always there was this understanding that the kingdom was near, it was soon. And then he even points out that when you see these miracles and you see the things that Jesus has done, then we know that the kingdom of God has come. And then in our passage today, notice what Jesus says. Verily I say unto you, in other words, truly, this is truth, and that's important. This verse that we're reading today, Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. This is truth. If Jesus says it, and Jesus is truth incarnate, and Jesus says this is truth, then what can we conclude? It's true, right? This is a true saying that Jesus is making. And that's why some who want to hold to the, to the literal interpretation of Scripture, and I am, I believe it's very important that we let Scripture say what Scripture says, and we believe this book totally as the inerrant Word of God. So some struggle with what's said here, and they will do these kind of mental gymnastics to explain it away that doesn't even fit with the text anymore. But we got to establish up front That what Jesus is saying is true. So now whether what we see next fits with our idea of eschatology or our theology or what we've always been taught or what we've always believed, what we've always done, if it conflicts with it, it's not God's problem, is it? 
That's our problem. And so if Jesus says it's true, then we're going to accept it is true. So let's look at exactly what Jesus says. Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. This is one of those tough passages. It's one of those tough sayings. And uh, I've referenced R.C. Sproul many times. He was one that in his life, he never strayed away from difficult passages. In fact, he would do whole series just on difficult passages of the Word of God. And this is one of those that uh, he weighed into. And I liked when he did so. It wasn't enough for R.C. Sproul to say this is a difficult passage. He says, these were his words. He said, I want to up the ante a little bit. Let me throw some other difficult passages that are similar to this along with it. Because if this one's not hard enough, let me go ahead and just give you some more that are hard. <laughs> and so he gives us several related passages that are very difficult for us. And I want us to take a look at some of those this morning as we try to get a better understanding of this verse. First of all, go back with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter number 10. Matthew chapter 10 and in verse number 21. Matthew chapter 10. In verse 21, and what we're going to see that becomes difficult for us is an issue of timing. If you watch the videos, if you turn on all the religious television channels, you will find these people all the time talking about what's happening next in prophecy and what's coming along next and what's the next event we can expect and when's this going to happen. Timing is always the issue we get stuck on. Matthew chapter 10, look at verse 21. Jesus says, And brother shall deliver up brother to death, and the father of the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel. By the way, before I finish this verse, when did this happen? When had the disciples gone throughout all the cities of Israel with the message of the gospel? All this was done and fulfilled in the first century. Okay, this was all done early. You can, you can read much of this as you go into the book of Acts and see the early history of the church. So this was accomplished very early on. These disciples are who Jesus is talking to. He says, you will not have gone over the cities of Israel. This is going to happen pretty soon. Now notice, till the Son of Man be come. Now there's where it becomes problematic for us. Because when we see these statements about Jesus coming, the immediate assumption is that final coming of Christ and we say, well, he hasn't returned yet physically. He hasn't really come back to this earth since he ascended to the Father. And yet Jesus tells them, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now look over in the same gospel in Matthew to chapter number 24. Matthew chapter 24 and we're just going to look at a couple verses here. This entire chapter, this will be a good one for you to go back home and, and read today. Spend some time in this one. But Matthew chapter 24, look at verse number 2. 
This is a chapter, by the way, that many people think of when they look toward the end times, toward eschatology. But look at verse 2. Jesus said to them, See ye not all these things? Now, what's he talking about? Well, back up at verse 1. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So you've got the picture here, right? If you've ever been to this part of Israel, you would understand. There in Jerusalem, you could sit there on the Mount of Olives. You could sit there in the garden. You could look back toward Jerusalem. You could see where the temple would be. You could see all the buildings of Jerusalem there on that hill. So Jesus' disciples, they're looking and they're seeing the, the buildings of Jerusalem. They're seeing the temple there. And Jesus said to them, see ye not all these things? You see these buildings? You see these temples? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That is a big statement that Jesus made. He said, you see all these buildings? You see this temple? There won't be one stone left on top of another. That's complete destruction, isn't it? And as he set up on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus has just described this destruction of Jerusalem. And what does his disciples ask him? When is this going to happen? When will these things be? Now look down in this same chapter to verse number 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and powers of heavens shall be shaken. By the way, you remember Jesus also, as he sent his disciples out throughout to spread the gospel. Do you remember him saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? You remember that? This is apocalyptic type, prophetic type language. Many of us think of this great tribulation period when we read verse 29. But look at what he says also in verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Many of us get an immediate picture of what this is and when it's going to happen. But stay with me a little bit. Look at verse 31. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now here's verse 34. Verily I say unto you, again Jesus says truly, I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Did you see that? This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Many of us at least have been taught all of our life that all of these things are yet to come. And yet Jesus says this generation won't pass till all these things be fulfilled. Anybody having some problems yet? Is this becoming a little uncomfortable yet? All right, look at one more. Mark chapter number 14. And we'll expound this later in our study of Mark when we get to it. But Mark chapter 14 and verse number 61. 
trying to show you this timeline. I'm trying to show you something that Jesus says about a generation. So Mark chapter 14, verse 61, this is Jesus' trial before the high priest. And it says, But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. Most of us stop there. Most of us say, well, the high priest got upset because Jesus claims to be deity. But watch the rest of the statement that Jesus makes to the high priest. And ye, you, you high priest, shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He just told the high priest that he would see this coming that he's referring to. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? <laughs> the high priest got the message really quick. Jesus says, You're going to see me, the king, coming. So this is within, again, a timeline, a generation. Now, let's go back to our text. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read it again so it sinks in. Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So this coming of the kingdom that Jesus is referring to in these passages was going to happen within that generation. Now a generation to a Jew, they would understand that to be a time period of around 40 years. That's what they would consider a generation. Now, to help you put that in perspective and understand that, think back to the book of Exodus when God was leading his people out of Egypt, taking them to the promised land, and they doubted God, they disobeyed God, they didn't have faith, they didn't go in and take the land as he told them to, and so they had to wander around in the wilderness, didn't they? Does anybody remember how long they wandered in the wilderness? How long? 40 years. It's okay for you to speak up. 40 years, right? Why did they have to wander around for 40 years? Why was that significant? Well, remember, God had said, this generation is not going to inherit this land, save for Joshua and Caleb. What was a generation understood as? About 40 years. And so for a generation's, a generation of time, for about 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness as those people were dying off and didn't get to see the promise. So what Jesus is saying here is that all of these things are going to happen. This is going to come up on this generation. That would put us in a time frame of about 40 years. That's important because, in fact, we see the fulfillment of all these things, as Christ said, in that time frame. Now, this won't make me popular in a lot of the circles that I've found myself in over the years. There's a lot of places they wouldn't have me back in the pulpit now. I would be done, all right? But we're just looking, we're just looking at the word together today. Um, but I can't stay true to the text with any other approach than what we're going to try to take here this morning. So let's wade into this text just a little bit. And here's the first question we want to ask of our text. Who will see the kingdom come? What is the kingdom? Now, we need to do that first. The kingdom represents the, the rule or the authority of Christ. We're talking about the rule, the reign, the authority of Jesus. 
Who is going to see this kingdom? Who's going to see this rule, this reign, this authority of Christ as king? Jesus says in verse number one, there be some of them that stand here. In other words, who's going to see the kingdom come? Some of you standing right here, right now listening to me are going to see this. You're going to experience this. This passage and some of the other ones I read for you this morning always created a problem for me. I'm just talking about me. It always created a problem for me because of the theology that I had, because of what I've been taught and what I was ingrained in, but my theology conflicted with the clear understanding of such passages. And, you know, I just found myself, and here's my own weakness I'm confessing before you this morning, okay? So I found myself afraid of being labeled a heretic or being an outcast or being outside of the circle of people I respected and listened to for years and that I cared for. And so you're afraid to even approach this passage any differently other than the light of the theology you've always been taught. And so I just remain conflicted within. I would listen to the explanations and I would see the interpretations and the mental gymnastics that were being that were taking place to try to make this all work and didn't quite get it, but I felt like almost I had to go along with it. You understand? Just being vulnerable this morning. But then I begin to look at the passage again and say, you know, it's important that I understand what does the text say? And here Jesus clearly says, some of you who are standing here, are going to experience whatever it is that's about to come about, whatever this event is that he's referencing, there were people there who were going to experience it. So this was a setting of a first century time frame for some type of coming that Jesus is referencing, though not necessarily his final coming. And about A.D. 70, there was no doubt a coming of Christ in judgment. Because Jerusalem, you remember that city that his disciples were sitting there looking at? They were looking at the buildings and the temple. We just talked about that. In AD 70, what Jesus said would happen, happened. There was a destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and literally there was not one stone left upon another. In fact, the stones were picked apart to receive any gold that might have been in the cracks and crevices there as the destruction of that place happened. Not one stone was left upon another. There was utter, total destruction of Jerusalem. And the temple ceased to be, AD 70. Anybody want to guess about how many years that was from the time Jesus made that statement that this was going to happen? Remember he said a generation, right? Yeah, it was right about 40 years. You think that's significant, perhaps. So... This would have been within that 40 years, within a generation. So who is going to see the kingdom come? Some of those that stand here. Well, when will they see the kingdom of God? Well, let's go further, Jesus' statement, chapter 1. That there be some that stand here which shall not taste of death. In other words, not everybody here is going to die before this takes place. So the assumption is there are going to be some people standing here who will die before it takes place, right? Not necessarily all of them will see it, but some of them will see it. Now, why is that important? Because if you look at many different scholars' interpretation of this passage and what they think Jesus was referring to, 
the timelines won't add up. Because if Jesus is just talking about the crucifixion or, say, the resurrection, or even, as we're going to see in just a minute, the transfiguration, all of these disciples, except for Judas, would have still been alive. Any of these other explanations for this kingdom coming, they would have all still been alive. But by A.D. 70, when there was the destruction of Jerusalem, not all of them were still alive, though some of them were. In that case, it makes total, complete sense. Now, this is going to affect how you read books like the book of Revelation, for example. It's why some people will try to take that book and argue for a later date that it was written. They want to argue for a date of Revelation being written after A.D. 70, Because if it was written after AD 70, you can make it appear that everything it's talking about is somewhere way off in the future, still yet to happen. But if you understand early authorship and that likely Revelation was written between, say, 65 and 68 AD, just prior to what happened to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, this will totally transform how you read the book of Revelation. You'll begin to see all of the things that transpired and took place even before that time, before the completion uh, of what took place in A.D. 70. So, uh, much of what all the books and movies and things are talking about, telling us is to come, perhaps is already past. Now, there's still a final coming of Christ when he delivers up that kingdom to the Father and the age is ended, we're ushered into eternity. But specifically, what we're dealing with is the most common, predominant view, at least in the United States today, is a predispensational or dispensational premillennial theology. It is by far the most common approach to what's going to happen in the last days. Now, what's interesting about it being the most prevalent, the most common, if you've ever watched or read the books Left Behind, that would follow with um, a dispensational premillennial theology. And that's the predominant one. But what's interesting about this view is it actually didn't even come about until sometime in the 1800s. And so you have people like Darby, and then you have uh, Schofield, and then later on you have Ryrie and some of these guys that made this view very popular. But prior to that, the church had not taught or believed that view. It didn't come around until the 1800s. So it's actually relatively a new view. Many of you probably didn't know that. So this was not the view that the church held from the first century. And that's why you see them pointing to every event that ever happens or takes place. And they'll say, up, up, there's another sign, right? Here's what's about to happen. Oh, it's coming. It's soon now. It's going to happen any time now because this event just took place. They said that back in the 40s. They said it in the 50s. They said it in the 70s, they, right? They continue to say these things. It's because they have that outlook on eschatology. So this event, whatever it is that Jesus is describing here, it's clear, though, he's saying this event is going to take place within the first century. Then a generation. So who will see the kingdom? When will they see the kingdom come? Let's talk about how they're going to see the kingdom come. What exactly is Jesus referencing? Look at verse 1 again. There be some that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen what? The kingdom of God come with 
power. The kingdom of God come with power. This is an interesting term here, the word come. When you look at it in the Greek text and you understand the verb that's used here, it implies that they would not just see it coming, but they actually would see it come to its completeness. In other words, they would actually see this event completely take place, what Jesus is describing. This is going to happen. You'll see it. Now, think about all that took place from Jesus saying this until the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. These disciples saw their Savior whipped, crucified. They saw him buried. They saw him rise again. They saw him ascend to the Father. They watched what happened in the church. You know, we talk about apostasy coming. Well, the greatest apostasy the church has ever seen, likely, was in the first century. If you don't believe it, I've got a book for you to read. It's called the Bible. If you'll pick up the Bible and read, especially throughout the book of Acts, and then you start reading the epistles of Paul, for example, look at how he has to correct these problems in the churches time and time again. And you see things happening in the church and being taught in the church then that probably exceed much of what's happening in the church today as bad as it is now. The greatest of apostasy was way back there in the first century. And these disciples experienced all of it. They saw all of that. They saw the Antichrist arise. John talks about this. Read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John talks about those Antichrists that would come. And he even seems to reference one particular person whom John apparently knew. And history tells us perhaps who this is. There you go. There's a research project for you. I won't give you all the answers, okay? And John perhaps knew who that person was. And there's some historical accounts of John even encountering him. It's very interesting. They saw so much take place. And they saw Christ's kingdom as it came in power. They saw his judgment upon the Jews. They saw that destruction of Jerusalem. They saw temple worship cease. And they saw the triumph of Messiah's church as it was made visible. Do you understand this was quite the transition time? We see that move from the old covenant to the new covenant. We see the ceasing of worshiping God, the temple, the sacrifices. They stopped because the one true final sacrifice had been made. Christ, once and for all. You say, well, what does all of that mean for us? If, if the kingdom came in some way at this time, and those disciples experienced it. What does that mean for us now? Let me just give you a few closing words that I hope will encourage us a little bit this morning. We need to recognize where Christ is today. Where is Christ at today? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, isn't he? Christ is on the throne now. I asked you that question at the beginning and I wanted you to think about that because we'll oftentimes make statements like we believe that Christ is king 
But we live like he's not king yet. We'll say Christ is king. We'll say Jesus is on his throne. But then we believe he has no authority and no control. That maybe just one day he'll come and have some. But when we recognize that Christ is on his throne now, we'll realize that his rule and his reign is spreading even today. From sea to sea, as we read in our passages this morning. And he has authority over every area of our life. I'm going to give you one more passage. You could probably quote this, but I'm going to ask you to turn to it. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to back up to verse number 18. Because what you probably memorized way back when, sometime, maybe in Sunday school or, or some other class, you memorized verse 19 and 20. You recognize that as a great commission. But I want you to notice how Jesus prefaces his statement in verse number 18. This is all important. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, What power? How much power? I'll let you fill in that blank. All. You know what all means? We had a president one time that didn't know what is meant, right? What does all mean? All means all. All power, all authority is given unto me. Now notice this, in heaven and where? And on earth. Jesus says, I have all authority. I have all power, not just in heaven, but even on this earth. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that he's king now, that he has all authority now, both in heaven and on earth today? And because of that, he says, you go, therefore, verse 19, and teach all nations. You know, they need to understand that Jesus is king. The nations need to know that he reigns. Go, you therefore, teach all nations, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them what? Now, many today will say, well, just, just teach them this shortened version of the gospel. Just, just teach them that they need to know they need to repent and believe Jesus. And that's important. Yes, they need to do that. They need to understand that whosoever believeth in him, right? They need to understand that. But that's not all Jesus says. Teaching them to observe all things. Again, what does all mean? All all things whatsoever I've commanded you. By the way, that's the entire book. He was behind it all. Teach them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. His authority doesn't start at the end of it all, does it? His authority exists now. And he says, it'll be with you and I'll be with you all the way to the end of the age. All the way to the end of the world. So what do you do? You go out and you spread that message. You go out and tell the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. That Jesus Christ rules. That Jesus Christ reigns. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you teach them to do those things that I've told you to do. You teach them to observe all of my word. That it impacts how you live your life and everything 
that you do. And he will be with us. This kind of view of life and of the future should lead us to optimism. This should encourage us today. So I mentioned earlier about this attitude of not even bringing children in this world because things are getting so bad. Well, you know, actually, we ought to have the opposite view. I saw this meme somewhere a couple weeks ago, I think. And it was kind of funny because the man was being asked, well, how many children are you going to have? He just had, you know, the family just added another kid to the family. Well, how many children are you going to have? And he says, more than my enemy. And I like that. More than my enemy. The Bible teaches us that children are those arrows in our quiver, right? And so we're raising them up. We're thinking about the generations to come. It's how we impact the kingdom of God for his glory. We're under this new covenant. And we need to be thinking about the long game. We need to be thinking about building. Thinking about generations to come. Advancing the kingdom until one day we see the king face to face. That in all that we do, that we are living for the glory of God. And whatsoever you eat or drink or in whatever you do, right? For his glory. It's not just when we're a preacher or a teacher of the Bible that we bring glory to God, is it? But if you're an engineer, engineer for the glory of God. If you're a farmer, farm for the glory of God. You know? If you're a doctor, treat patients for the glory of God. If you're a mother, raise children for the glory of God. And whatever you do for His glory, for the glory of King Jesus. Now I know I've probably brought out some things today. We could spend a lot of time with this that may have challenged you a little bit, may have caused you to think a little bit differently, may have seemed a little bit odd to you. But I'm going to go back to Sproul again and And he stated at the end of this, he said, I don't know if my interpretation of this passage is exactly correct. But I know this. I know that Jesus is truth. And I know if Jesus said it, it's true. And I know if he said it would happen in this time, it happened in this time. And if that conflicts with my theology or someone else's theology, then so be it. Because at the end of it all, Sproul said, Jesus' mouth is the reliable source of truth. Let's bow together. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.